Well, I don't know how else to say it, Leah, but your mother and I were worried sick last night when you came home late. You came in past your curfew. You weren't answering your phone. I know, I know. I'm sorry. I told you already. Kevin and I just lost track of time. Well, I am more than willing to buy Kevin a watch. <laughs> what were you doing? Uh, do I even want to know the answer to that question? It was nothing bad. Give me some credit. It's not like everyone else at school hasn't done way more than I have. I'm going to pretend I didn't even hear that. Look, the, the bottom line is, whatever anyone else is doing, you're coming home at 10. Or you're not going to be seeing Kevin and again. Why, why 10? It's just a number. It's just a rule. What's so much safer about 10 p.m. than 10.30? I thought you said you wanted this to be the best year of my life. Well, I, yeah, I did. I did. But uh, is going out with Kevin the best thing that you can imagine? Okay, don't answer that. I was 17 once, too. But look, hear me out. I worry about this kid because you said he's not a Christian. Which doesn't make him a jerk. No, it doesn't. But I thought you would like someone who, who shares your faith. It's not like we're getting married. We're just dating. Or am I only allowed to date guys in youth group now? It's not about what you're allowed. Oh, yes it is. Uh, no, no, Leah, Leah, listen. Your friends, your, your boyfriend, it just, it feels like you're, you're, you're drifting away from all the friends and the fun that you always had at church, from the, the grounding that gave you. And, and yes, there are boundaries, but- You want to talk about me? And boundaries and grounding? Okay, what about you? What about yesterday, on the phone with Uncle Josh, talking about, oh, the neighbor who dented your car? You heard that? Mm-hmm. Would you like me to repeat any of oh, it? Oh, no. That won't be necessary. <sighs> yeah, I, I said some things I shouldn't have said. I lost my temper. Don't tell your mother. I know, sometimes the things you shouldn't be doing, they just look so good at the time. Why is that? I mean, it seems like it's impossible to do everything that the Bible says. I mean, I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray. How Christian do I have to be? How Christian do I have to be? It's a pretty searching question. One we've probably all asked for at one time or another, no matter uh, how young or old we are, no matter how short or long we've been following Christ. Do I have to say no to this or to that or, or whatever looks fun or inviting or convenient at the moment? I mean, how many rules are there anyway? And how many do I have to keep to be Christian, to thrive? That's the question we're asking as we make our way through the book of Colossians this fall, learning how to live life to the full. And today we come to the halfway mark of the book, and it's kind of a turning point in the letter. Like many of Paul's letters, the, the first half of the letter is very doctrinal in its focus. 
Paul is concerned that his readers and we get our beliefs right, that we believe what's true. In the second half of the letter, chapters 3 and 4, he shifts his focus and begins to talk now about behavior and about how we live. And that's where we're headed this week and in the weeks to come. So there's a change of focus as we shift from the first half to the second half, but there's also a shift in mood. And I'm using that word mood in the grammatical sense of the word. I'm going to take you back to your eighth grade English class for just a moment. Did you know that verbs could have moods? They can be in the indicative mood or the imperative mood. The indicative mood is used to indicate a fact, to say something that's true. The imperative mood is used to state something that should be true, that we want to be true. It's used to make a command or a request. So the indicative mood would be alpha begins this week, stating a fact. The imperative mood would be bring a friend to alpha. That's the imperative. That's what we want you to do. So the first two chapters of Colossians, like many of Paul's letters, are primarily in the indicative mood. They're telling us who we are. That's what we've been talking about. The fact that we are grounded in the knowledge of God. That we are shaped by the gospel as people and a community. That our lives and our church are centered around Christ. It's, it's who we are. In chapters 3 and 4, the mood shifts to the imperative, how we live. And he's going to go into detail about how our beliefs get translated into behaviors at home and at work and on the job and in the community and around the church, and that's where we're headed. But I want you to understand these two parts are related because it's the indicative that should, effect, that should determine the imperative. What we believe determines how we live. Christianity is not really about keeping a set of rules. It's about being a certain kind of person, a person who's made in the image of God, a person who looks like Jesus more and more each day. So we'll come back to this in a few minutes because it's more important than you think and a little more fun than it sounds, okay? So just hang with me. Let's, let's read these opening paragraphs of Colossians 3 and, and pay attention to the shift in mood from indicative to imperative. Paul writes, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Well, I know it's the second half of that passage that really looks interesting, and I did promise you last week that we talk about sex this week, and we will, so hang in there. But before we get to that, before we get to the imperatives, let's just refresh the indicatives here. Paul begins by reminding his readers and reminding us who we are. Remember now, these Colossian Christians had gotten off to a great start in their lives as Christ followers, in their life as a community of faith, so Paul's affirming them for a great start. But they were in danger of losing their way to some bad teaching and to some bad behaviors. 
Now, so Paul's pivoting now from bad beliefs to bad behaviors. But he begins with the beliefs. And he reminds them and he reminds, reminds us that, that we have been raised with Christ, that we died to Christ, that Christ is now living in us. What he's probably doing here is calling attention to their baptism because he actually talks about baptism back in chapter 2. When someone is baptized by immersion, they are lowered into the water, symbolizing burial, as if they're being laid in the ground, dying to an old way of living, dying to their old self. And then they are raised out of that, raised to a new way of life, as if they're being born into a new way of being and a new way of living. So Paul's calling attention to that here, to their baptism. He's reminding us that this is true of us. We died to our old way. We, we don't have to live that way any, anymore. In Christ, we've been raised to a new way of being and a new way of living. The, the, the old self no longer has control over us. We're free. Free for better things. Now, I gave you a grammar lesson, so let me give you a quick theology lesson as well. When theologians talk about sin or evil in the life of a Christian, they talk about it in three tenses, so to speak. First of all, they tell us that when Christ died, we were freed from the penalty of sin. So that's something that happened in the past. We no longer have to fear judgment for any of our failures because Christ has accepted the punishment on our behalf. It's all been taken care of. We are free from the penalty of sin in this life and the life to come. In the present, we are freed from the power of sin. Because Christ died, we're no longer slaves to sin. We have the freedom to choose better things. Now, we still have those evil tendencies within us because we're not glorified yet, but we're free now to say, to say no to those things. Free from the presence of, from the power, from the power of sin. And in the future, we're going to be free from the presence of sin. Someday, when Christ finishes what he's begun, when he puts everything right, then there will be no more evil in you, in me, in us, in the world, or in all creation. And so, freed in the past from the penalty, freed in the present from the power of sin and evil, and freed in the future from the presence of sin. So I hope you're beginning to see now that, that we live out of these truths. Paul's telling us to be who we are. So being a Christian is not a matter of gritting your teeth and keeping all the rules. It's about a freedom to be who you are, who you want to be, and who you were meant to be. A child of God. A follower of Jesus. Let me try to illustrate this in a very down-to-earth way. Uh, recently, just the past week, I was mentioning to somebody that we've been living here in, in Boston for over 16 years now. And this person knows me a little bit, so they said, wow, have you converted yet? <laughs> now you know what they were asking. Have you become a Red Sox fan? And I said to them what I often say when people ask me that. I say, if you moved to New York for 16 years, would you become a Yankee fan? <laughs> and they get this look of horror. Say it, may it never be. They can't imagine something like that. Because if you were born and raised in New England, rooting for the Red Sox isn't something you just do. It's somebody you are. It's who you are at the very core of your being. 
You don't have to make yourself go to Fenway or wear a Red Sox hat around town or even hate the Yankees. It just comes naturally to you. <laughs> it's the air you breathe. So the indicative of being a New Englander leads to the imperative of rooting for the uh, Red Sox and hating the Yankees, and that's just the way it is. And that's the last I'm going to talk about baseball for this season. <laughs> In a similar way, if you have been born into the family of God through faith in Christ, if you have been raised with Christ to a new way of being, then, then living like Christ isn't keeping a bunch of rules. It's about being who you are. It's about living from the very core of your being, of your identity as a human being made in the image of God. As I got to thinking about this way of understanding our behavior, the word obey came to my mind. Now, when we hear the word obey, we usually understand it in terms of keeping a set of rules. And there is that dimension to it. But as I thought about that word and as I looked at that word, I realized that at the very center of the word obey is the word be. Be. So obedience is not our conformity to an external set of rules. It's about us being the person we were meant to be in the first place and living out of that center. So with that grammar and that theology in our minds, let's now jump into these next challenging verses. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And once again, Paul begins by reminding us of the indicative of our condition in Christ. We've died to sin. Its power over us has been broken. It's no longer the energizing force in our lives. So Paul says, don't go digging it up again. Those old ways of being, leave them in the grave. You don't have to go dig them up. He's talking about sinful, evil behaviors. And let's talk about those two words for a minute. Because a lot of people have a hard time accepting that word sinful. But it's closely related to the word evil. Most people don't have much of a problem accepting the fact that there's evil in the world. And that sometimes there's evil in us. Well, sin is just personal evil. Evil is anything that, that brings harm or pain or ruin or destruction. And sometimes we think and do things that bring harm and pain and ruin and destruction to ourselves or to other people or to the world around us. So let's not get all hung up on this idea of sin. I think we'll all acknowledge there's evil out there. Well, there's evil in here too. And sometimes it shows up in our, in our behaviors. And so Paul gives us a list of these sins. And if you think they sound bad here, you should hear them in the King James Version. <laughs> Fornication. Inordinate affection. Evil concupiscence. I mean, whatever it is, it sounds bad. <laughs> They should sound bad because these words are speaking to us about behaviors and attitudes that are harmful, that are painful, that are ruinous to human life and relationships. And when we choose these behaviors, it's like going back to a grave and digging up what's dead and stinking. So we don't have time to unfold this whole list here, but we can kind of group them into three categories. And the first behaviors have to do with our sexuality. Paul tells us to, to 
put off sexual immorality. Now, that's kind of a catch-all word, immorality, that simply describes any sexual intimacy outside the covenant of biblical marriage. So immorality is simply any sexual intimacy outside the covenant of biblical marriage. I did a wedding yesterday for a neighbor, a friend of mine. It was out on the Cape. It wasn't quite the sun-splashed beach wedding they were hoping for, but it was still a good day. And I began the ceremony with the traditional opening words of the marriage ceremony. Marriage is an institution ordained by God. And what that means is that marriage is God's idea. And it's a great idea. It's the idea of a man and a woman committed to each other in love for life. It's God's idea. And it turns out that sex is God's idea too. It's a way for that man and woman to express and enjoy their love for one another in very profound and powerful and pleasurable ways. It's a great gift. And that intimacy, that gift, is meant to be experienced in the safety and the freedom of marriage, of a lifelong covenant commitment. Because in that, in that kind of safety, in that kind of environment, you are free to give yourself wholly to another person, knowing they're going to be there in the morning, and the next morning, and the next morning, and the next morning. You give yourself to that person, knowing that they love you as you really are. There's nothing you can reveal to them that will cause them to turn away or to walk away. You can give yourself away knowing that it's not just your body they want or a few moments of pleasure, but it's you they want. It's all of you they want, always. You see what a wonderful, safe, free environment that is for exploring and enjoying your sexuality. But when you experience sexual intimacy outside the safety and freedom of that environment, you're exposing yourself to all kinds of hurt and harm and ruin. You're giving the most precious and vulnerable part of yourself away to someone who may not be there in the morning, to someone who hasn't made a commitment to you, to someone who hasn't promised to love you and cherish you in sickness and in health, to someone who may be doing the same thing with someone else the next night. Now, why would you do that, Paul says? Why would you expose yourself and someone else to that kind of pain and hurt and ruin? You are made for better things. Now, there are some obvious reasons we might expose ourselves to those kinds of things. In part, sex feels good. It was made to feel good. God gave us that gift so it would draw us, husbands and wives, into deep relationship with each other. So it feels good. But a half gallon of Bedford ice cream feels good too for a few minutes. <laughs> it makes you sick afterwards. Sex feels close for another thing. And it feels good to be close to another person. We all want to know and be known in the deepest, intimate possible way. But when, but when that person pulls away, as they certainly will apart from marriage, sooner or later, when they pull away, it tears, it hurts, and it leaves scars. Why expose yourself to that? Why inflict that on another person 
Paul says. You, you are made for better things. So any sexual intimacy outside that covenant relationship, extramarital sexuality, premarital sexuality, same-sex activity, anything outside the safety of biblical marriage is just exposing us to pain and hurt and ruin. You're made for better than that. It all falls short of what God had in mind. Maybe you noticed that the Lady Gaga was in the news this week. She's going to be performing at the Super Bowl this year. No doubt it will be a great show. She's also recently released a pretty powerful song called Perfect Illusion. And it's a pretty good tune. Great energy, great beat, great melody. But it tells a sad story. A story about a relationship that looked like the real thing. Felt like the real thing. But turned out not to be the real thing. It wasn't love, she says. It was a perfect illusion. And with that discovery, with that disappointment, comes a certain cynicism. I'm over the show. Yeah, at least now I know. Mistaken for love. It wasn't love. It was a perfect illusion. Well, a disappointment like that hurts. And if one disappointment like that hurts, think about the cumulative effect of one broken relationship after another. A recent survey of college students asks them to describe how they feel about their hookups, casual sexual encounters. 41% say they are profoundly unhappy. 23% say they are ambivalent. And 36% say they are more or less fine. What a sad thing. What an awful thing to do with the great gift of sexuality. God didn't give us sexuality so that we could feel profoundly unhappy or ambivalent or more or less fine. Why settle for something like that when you were made for so much better and the people you love were made for so much better? It's not about keeping the rules. It's about being the people we were meant to be. It's about living the life we want to live. It's about loving in ways that are truly satisfying and good for us and for the world. Our sexuality is designed to make us feel alive and engaged and, and, and eager for intimate relationship. And, and that's true whether you are single or married, whether you're gay or straight, whether you are young or old, that sexuality is a gift to make you feel alive and engaged and eager for relationship. But understand, you don't have to be sexually active to be a sexual person. That sexuality is simply designed to wake you up to who you are and to what's inside this capacity for love and for relationship. And, and if you should happen to find yourself struggling with that sexuality, with, with, with who you are and, and what you want, if you're struggling, confused about it, God wants to meet you in that place. Because the very fact that you long for something tells you you were made for something. God wants to meet you and help you sort that out and lead you to good things with it. And there's obviously a whole lot more we could say about sexuality and a lot more we could ask, but we don't have time for that today. We'll have to take it up another time. But before we move on, let me just remind you that sexuality is just one of many, many areas in which all of us fall short of God's glory. Paul's going to go on here to talk about other sinful tendencies. 
about things like greed and gossip and prejudice. There's not a person here who hasn't fallen short in one of those areas or in all of these areas. And too often Christians have singled out sexual sins and and have heaped shame on themselves or others instead of offering grace and receiving grace. Not a person listening today who hasn't struggled or failed somehow sexually over the course of their lifetimes. So this is not about passing judgment on ourselves or anyone. It's not about excluding anyone. This is about about meeting each other where we are because that's where God meets us. And then he, he leads us to pursue better things for ourselves and for those we love. So that's our sexuality. The next two we'll move through a little more quickly. The second set of behaviors have to do with our habits of speech. Paul mentions slander, filthy language, lying. He goes on to talk about things we say in anger, things that are meant to hurt or punish somebody. Now, I grew up in a home where we just never used that kind of language. Never. I never heard my parents swear. I never heard my parents gossip about anybody. I rarely heard them speak harshly to themselves, once in a while to us. But but even when they did that, they always apologized and made things right quickly. We didn't use words like stupid or shut up. And when my old-fashioned grandmother came to visit once, we weren't even allowed to say the word pregnant, even though my mother was at the time. (laughs) But even with all of that, it was never really about keeping the rules. It was just, that's who we are. That's not how we talk in this family. We're Christians. We don't talk that way. It's who we are. And that's what Paul's getting at here. Let, let's speak from who we are. We're, we're, we're children of God. We're made to be like Jesus. Think about the kind of language he used, about the, the words of blessing and healing and hope and help and love and affirmation he spoke. Paul says, why go back and say things that are offensive and, and hurtful and distracting and destructive when you can say things that heal and help and bless and lift up. In fact, Paul introduces a whole new metaphor here to describe this new way of living. It's not only like dying and rising, he says, it's also like taking off an old set of clothes and putting on a whole new outfit. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Have you ever tried on a new suit or a new dress and suddenly felt like a whole new person? Thought about the fact that you could actually reinvent yourself, that maybe you could be cool after all, or glamorous, or whatever it is you happen to have on? That's what Paul's saying here. He's giving us a whole new set of of clothes, a closet full of behaviors and attitudes to put on that, that are custom designed for us to make us the most handsome and beautiful version of ourselves that we could ever possibly be. Why put on those shabby old clothes again? And the same thing is true when it comes to this third category, relating to people who are different from us. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Because of Christ, we are free from prejudice. 
We don't have to judge anybody or value anybody differently because of their religion or their socioeconomic status or their, their racial background or any other worldly standard. Because in Christ, we're free from that. Because in Christ, we're all the same. We're all human beings made in the image of God. We're all sinners saved by grace. We're all brothers and sisters adopted into his family. So it's not about keeping a set of rules. It's about being who, who we are on the inside. It's not about all the stuff we have to say no to. It's about all the stuff we get to say yes to. If you grew up in the 1980s or if you were raising kids in the 1980s, you probably remember something called the Just Say No campaign. It was a national movement that was kind of designed to help kids stay away from drugs and alcohol and anything that could be bad for them. And the thing got started, allegedly, when uh, the first lady, Nancy Reagan, was visiting an elementary school, and, and she got talking to a, a young schoolgirl who looked up at her and asked what she should do when someone tried to make, them, make her take drugs. And First Lady Reagan said, just say no. <laughs> and it just, it caught on. It was so simple, it was so obvious, it was brilliant. And so pretty soon there were, there were posters and school assemblies and bumper stickers and jingles. I remember my kids singing them, just say no to drugs as they walked around the house. <laughs> there was only one problem. Saying no is a lot harder than it sounds. It's hard to say no to something when, when it looks like fun and when everybody else is doing it and when you're desperate to fit in and when you're aching on the inside and when you're hurting so badly, you'll do anything to feel better, to feel loved, even for a few moments. The problem with just saying no is that it isn't always strong enough to overcome the pull and the power of evil. And the problem with rules is that they don't change us from the inside. Paul actually says that back in chapter 2. He writes, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Do you hear that? They lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. What he's saying here is, is that he's not saying rules don't matter. He's simply saying rules can't save us and rules can't change us. What we need is a new heart. What we need is a new set of clothes. What we need is a new life, new possibility. And that happens to us in Christ. The freedom to say yes. To say yes to what's good and true and beautiful. To say yes to better.